Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, and I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This year, at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, I participated in a fascinating experimental event called A Long Night of Dreaming About the Future of Intelligence. Curated by Rafael Dernbach in collaboration with the Università della Svizzera Italiana, the event was as strange and wonderful as the title suggests. Beginning at sunset on August 9th and ending at sunrise on August 10th, the event involved a series of talks and workshops that invited guests and attendees to ponder what intelligence means, how artificial intelligence is changing our relationships to ourselves and the world, and how dreams may offer up keys to our future. I was one of the hosts of this event, and today, we're sharing an excerpt from my moderating shift, featuring a conversation with AI scholar Andrea Rizzoli and critic Kevin B. Lee about the history of artificial intelligence and its limitations and possibilities vis-a-vis art. Check out last week's episode for another excerpt from A Long Night of Dreaming about the Future of Intelligence, featuring Stanford University scholar Shane Denson on the brave new world of post-cinema. I'm so excited to uh, call to the stage the next couple of guests. Please welcome Kevin B. Lee, who is the professor of the future of cinema and audiovisual arts at USI and Locarno Film Festival, as well as the scholar Andrea Rizzoli, who also teaches at USI and works a lot in the field of engineering and AI and modeling and simulation and its application to natural resources, which I'm really excited to get into. But I I was wondering if both of you wanted to say some introductory words um, about what you've heard so far and uh, how your own work applies to this, because you come from very different fields. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm really curious what this has provoked so far in you. Oh, certainly a lot. But I feel that as the uh, Locarno Film Festival professor, it's my duty to remind all of us that we're in a film festival (laughs) and that, uh, you know, thinking about intelligence and so far the conversation has been very much rooted in the question of artificial intelligence, which, Andrea, you're going to give us a a deeper historical and also contemporary ethical and cultural uh, insight. Um, I, I want to somehow find a way to make space for what I'd like to call cinematic intelligence. And uh, I think Devika and I, we've talked a bit about certain films and and things here in the festival and thinking about the role that uh, cinema plays in conveying a certain intelligence that's uh, articulated through the language of cinema. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the language of cinema, let's talk about the language that is really uh, bringing a lot of hype and attention in the last year. And Andrea, you've been researching artificial intelligence for like 35 years. So it's quite a radical, you know, epochal transformation of public awareness and interest in your work. So could you say... And also I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the different terms that have been used for Mm. this concept. I mean, 35 years ago, was it 
called artificial intelligence? Yes, it was. Okay. So the reason I'm here is basically because I'm coordinating uh, and directing the Dallemolle Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which uh, is a research institute of both Uzi and Supsi, and it has been founded 35 years ago. Um, despite I'm quite old, I was there in 1988, but uh, I've been through the history of the Institute for long enough to tell you a few things about uh, how artificial intelligence has evolved through the years. Uh, the term artificial intelligence has been uh, coined uh, in Dartmouth College during a conference in 1950, something like that. But the idea of artificial intelligence comes from thousands of years ago. Uh, the Greeks were fascinated by automata, and they were able to build machines that were displaying the same, same sort of autonomous behavior in regulating, uh, for instance, the opening of doors or some gods that were appearing on temples and this type of things. But clearly the technology wasn't ready for uh, providing these uh, um, manifestation of uh, autonomous behavior with uh, what we would uh, deem intelligence. Uh, we can wait some other thousands of years uh, to get the automata that were developed uh, in Switzerland by the uh, clockmakers, mm -hmm. and they are very fine pieces of machinery, but they are totally deterministic. They respond to a predetermined series of instructions mm -hmm. they can repeat to infinity. And they are, again, not what we would define intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think the term artificial intelligence has been very appropriate uh, for the 50s when the first um, emulation of the behavior of our brain were realized through the perceptron. That was an electronical circuit that represented the inner structure of the brain with the neuron, the axon, in order to be able to reproduce the type of uh, triggerings uh, that we uh, get in our brain, our cells, uh, uh, through the uh, electrical stimuli. And um, these machines were very simple with respect to what we have today. And there was the problem that weren't uh, able basically to uh, classify complex uh, phenomena and distinguish nonlinear uh, situation like uh, current neural networks are. Yeah. So there was a crisis in AI, and that was around the 80s, uh, just after the Dallemol Institute has been uh, founded. So people switched to a different type of artificial intelligence, that one that Gala was displaying before, ELISA, for instance. Mm -hmm. ELISA is a rule-based system. You have a set of programmatic rules, if then else is, and then the program goes through them. And it gives you the impression of understanding you, being able to interact with you as Gala demonstrated. You give an input, tell me more about that. Do you think you have a problem with your uh, family? Th tell me something more about that. But actually, it is uh, just a, um, a manifestation of something that is not really there. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, here it comes the moment where ITSIA became important because ITSIA fortunately is quite relevant on a worldwide level 
because uh, the research of uh, uh, Jürgen Schmiduber, that is a professor at Tuzi and at Kaust, now in Saudi Arabia, uh, were able to solve a problem with the training of deep neural networks, that one that are used, for instance, also in uh, transformers like these uh, GPT and ChatGPT and Basically, they are everywhere. These deep neural networks are basically the same structure that was invented by Minsky many years ago, the perceptron, but with multiple layers with thousands of parameters. And the problem is that uh, uh, these systems learn by examples. You show a picture of a cat and you tell, this is a cat. You show a picture of a dog, this is a dog, and then you saw thousands of cats, thousands of dogs, and then they learn to distinguish between what is a cat, what is a dog. Mm -hmm. The problem is that uh, when the networks were large enough with a classical structure, uh, after a while, uh, uh, they, I mean, I can't enter the detail of the training algorithm, but basically it was not possible to increment the predictive capability of the network. Uh, Schmiduber and his colleagues invented a new structure of the network that was recurring using past information and that was able also to process information over time. And this was fundamental to solve uh, this problem of training these networks and also for processing sequences. Sequences means uh, speech, means text, mm -hmm. means uh, videos. And so this is why if you have an Android phone, the algorithm that is uh, uh, understanding your voice has been uh, actually developed here in Ticino for the first time. So this is quite surprising. Many people don't know that. Mm. <laughs> and can you, sorry, can you say what you mean by processing over time? What does that mean? Uh, like storing uh, memory, that, or yeah, I mean, uh, when you are processing speech or text. Uh, uh, to be able to predict the next uh, phoneme, uh, uh -huh. you need to understand what are what is the sequence of the previous phonemes. Okay. And this can be something very simple. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to do a prediction over a few uh, instances, but it can be very complex, like we see in transformers nowadays. Mm -hmm. Chat GPT is based on this pre-trained generative transformer, mm -hmm. and it is a model that builds on some pre-existing uh, mechanism mm -hmm. uh, that uses these type of uh, uh, structures. Mm -hmm. And um, the major breakthrough actually happened when uh, GPUs were made available. Mm -hmm. Because Schmiduber made this discovery in the 90s and the computational power was not there yet. In 2010, uh, around that year, 2010, 2012, uh, GPUs that were um, originally invented for computer graphics. What is a GPU? Graphical processing unit. Mm -hmm. In all of our computers, in the mobile phones, now we have GPUs. Mm -hmm. And they were quite fancy at the time, uh, and they were invented for video games. But then researchers discovered that they could use them to implement in a parallel way these complex algorithms. And so it was possible to process huge amount of data and to make uh, these uh, uh, deep neural networks process uh, data in a superhuman way. Superhuman means with the abilities that are superior to what we as humans do. But this was limited to very narrow tasks like image classification, as I was telling you, mm -hmm. speech processing. This was before the advent of uh, uh, pre-trained generative models that are able to process text mm -hmm. and that is much more similar to what uh, uh, we feel to be an intelligent type of behavior as humans. Mm -hmm. But the question that 
we can ask ourselves now. Are these machines now really intelligent? Mm -hmm. I mean, instead of thousands of parameters like uh, uh, the deep neural networks, now they have billions. Mm -hmm. And they have a complexity that is similar to our brains. Mm -hmm. But are they intelligent in the way that we are? Well, uh, I guess I did want to ask, what is the technical definition of intelligence in your field? <laughs> uh, what is an intelligent machine? Yeah, uh, I mean, there are many different uh, definitions, but basically they are mostly based on an input-output. I mean, uh, do the, the classical definition is the Turing test, invented by the mathematician Alan Turing in yeah. the 30s. You know, and it says, basically, if you put a machine behind a door and uh, in another room you put a human, you ask the same questions to the machine and you get the answers, are you able to distinguish the machine from the human? This is a classical example mm -hmm. of a test to uh, a definition of artificial intelligence. If the machine is able, uh, from the outside, outside perspective, to act like a human, then you say, okay, this is an intelligent machine. But I think that we give a different uh, meaning to uh, intelligence in the sense that we have autonomy, in the sense of having free will, intention to do, mm -hmm. uh, sanctions, consciousness, a number of other things that currently are not present in these machines. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, these qualities are quite important uh, for a machine to be able to be, for instance, creative. Because we, we can ask a machine to produce uh, a painting in the style of Van Gogh, mm -hmm. and they can generate these paintings. But can we ask this machine to invent a new painting style? But when you associate, oh, I'm sorry, when you associate intelligence with something like free will, earlier we were talking about um, intelligence in animals or other species besides humans. And so this question of uh, using an animal paradigm like crows or animal dolphins, animals that uh, have demonstrated behaviors that humans can recognize as intelligent, but also what about animals that behave in ways that we may not perceive as intelligent, but might have an intelligence of their own? So, you know, free will is, is a very human concept. I don't know if you would attribute free will to chimpanzees or, or other animals. Like, how do we, how do we define it? Uh, well, this is a too difficult question for, for me, definitely. Uh, the point is that uh, there are so many different types of intelligence as we're discussing. We have also emergent type of intelligence, like uh, ant colonies, which also inspired other type of algorithms. They have a sort of emergence intelligence, and you can attribute the intention to the colony, but not to the single ant. Mm. So, uh, is intelligence and consciousness an emergent property of a structure that could be the structure of our mind or the structure of a machine? Mm -hmm. uh, for the moment, I, I don't think we know. Uh, maybe in the future, with uh, more computational power and with the ability of these machines to interact with the real world, because now these machines uh, display some sort of uh, artificial consciousness that we attribute to them, but they don't have, because mm. they're just regressing on past information. Right. But they don't learn from the real world. They learn from text. They learn from data that is textual. If they learn from interacting uh, with a real world like an embodied AI could do? Mm -hmm. Would they demonstrate an emergent property like intelligence? This is the so question. So right now, intelligence is perfect sim simulation, the ability to simulate a human. Yeah. 
yeah. as close to perfection mm-hmm. as possible. But I think because we don't know the limits to human intelligence, it's maybe hard to draw a boundary around what intelligence could constitute in a machine or an object, right? I mean, because human intelligence isn't definable. Absolutely not. And if the Turing, something like the Turing test is based on the, on an idea of what human intelligence means, which is impossible to nail down. I kind of want to, you know, you brought up this like really great question of can AI produce new art? And I think Like we have been talking about glitches and I think there is a way in which AI could create something that doesn't exist. But can it create something we would recognize as beautiful? Can AI recognize beauty? I mean... Well... Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> again, Schmiduger developed a theory of beauty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is totally mathematical. Hmm? So, is, and I think this dates back to the Greek again. You know, they had the theory of beauty based on the golden ratio, the perfect proportion, right. and it wrote this algorithm that could classify the beautifulness of a face. Mm. And it worked quite well. Mm? I think that possibly, mm. but, but I don't think that you can quantify beauty. Right, because I think maybe with you could quantify like the attractiveness of a face or something based on how people react with the face. But for example, when you look at certain paintings like impressionists mm-hmm. or something, it stirs something in you. And I'm, I'm being very abstract here because we're mm-hmm. talking about beauty, but I, I feel like there is an experience of beauty of the sublime that is not conditioned socially. And what a mathematical conception of beauty relies on socially conditioned ideas of beauty. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm trying to like kind of make a bridge to maybe cinema here too, because I was thinking when looking at, for example, the, the video that Shane uh, showed us that the, the, it, digital images just look ugly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that is because they don't look like reality. I mean, I don't know if realism and simulation comes into mm-hmm. it. So I don't know if the ability to create beauty has to also do with simulation. But I don't know. Is, is, can beauty be reconstructed in the way that intelligence can, well, I guess? You're, you're provoking so many that I will need <laughs> some time to, <laughs> to reply also to Kevin. But um, there are a few things I, I, I want to say. Mm-hmm. First of all is that I think that uh, uh, an AI could generate something that we haven't seen before, even based on past data. But the AI cannot explain why uh, it or she or he created that thing. Mm. If you take the impressionist, they had a clear idea of what they wanted to do with their technique. Mm. And they could explain the reason behind that. Mm. If you take the guy, I forgot the name, that painted that black painting uh, that is uh, uh, on show in Basel, in Basel yes, uh, and uh, just totally black. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, everybody can do that, but it's the idea, it's the concept. Mm. And so you need uh, the consciousness and the intention to do something. Mm. And then this might not, I mean, it's not beautiful. It is a concept. It is art because it has an idea behind that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is something that, in my opinion, you, you can trust uh, an AI that is unconscious to do this. Mm. And uh, yeah, this is uh, one point. And the other thing is that uh, the quantification of uh, uh, beauty, uh, again, it's, uh, it's pretty 
impossible because it depends uh, on how we perceive it and it is very subjective mm -hmm. and therefore uh, mathematics can give you an first uh, classification that is maybe something objective but in my opinion beauty is very subjective mm. Mm. well it makes me wonder that the more that these algorithms are able to replicate established and recognizable works of art like a Van Gogh or a Picasso does that diminish um, their value since they can be replicable like they, they it, the, the way I see it the more that these um, iconic images and aesthetics can be replicated uh, they they really start to enter the language of banality and i find myself desiring images that i can't find through algorithms um so that's that's just maybe more of a statement or a response but i think i would maybe react with what andrea just said which is of a, a van gogh is not special to me a painting is not special because I can't find it online. It's special because Van Gogh made it at a certain point and he was a certain kind of artist. Yeah. And so there is a contextual element of why we value art that I don't think has to do with reproducibility. You know, I mean, I know Walter Benjamin and all of this idea of what mechanical reproduction robs of art. And I think that is a different question from what you're asking because that is a question of value, not of our appreciation of art. Um, does the value of a painting go down if people can reproduce it? I don't know. People can reproduce paintings pretty well now and people still pay millions of dollars for, for original. originals. So like the economy of value will always find ways to preserve, you know, the value of art objects, of speculative objects, I think. And I think, and that is different from something like an appreciation of history, I mean, ultimately, a moment that has passed cannot be reproduced. I mean, so far, I don't know, maybe we'll get to a, a place where that happens. So um, at least I don't, yeah, I don't, my appreciation isn't calibrated by. Yeah, like a deeply embedded human context of understanding and appreciation. Yeah. Um, I want to offer an anecdote related to the film festival and algorithms about uh, a desire of mine to well, if not reproduced, to produce an event that was supposed to happen but didn't happen because, uh, as you all know, there, there's the uh, SAG Actors Union strike that has had an impact on the uh, the festival because uh, certain guests such as Kate Blanchett and Riz Ahmed and uh, Stellan Skarsgård, um, who were expected to attend the festival, have declined to do so. And I was supposed to be the moderator for a talk with Riz Ahmed uh, upon the rec his receiving uh, a career achievement award and it was my chance to meet one of my heroes and I was really <laughs> heartbroken so I kind of gave in to a little algorithmic tempt fantasy temptation like not quite rep well yeah my own version of replica um, I used this uh, engine called runway ml which is a text to video generator so forget about Dali it's not just about text to image now you can do text to video and so I put in um Kevin B. Lee and Riz Ahmed on stage having a talk at the Locarno Film Festival. Uh, I wish I could show you the image right now, but it's almost better to imagine it. Um, it so it spat out an image of 
two figures that kind of look like Riz Ahmed talking to each other. <laughs> so does that mean, and I'm trying to f understand the logic of the, the algorithm. Does that mean that Kevin Beely does not exist in its uh, image set? Yeah, I'm, I'm a nobody and, you know, Riz Ahmed's worth Kevin, two aren't people. aren't you doing the very thing that actors are uh, trying to stop students yeah. from doing? Creating AI avatars to replace their... Physical. Well, this is what happens when they don't show up. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but it's it's also an experiment to understand what are the the capabilities and the implications. So I, I'm kind of using myself as a guinea pig. Um, and yeah, because I didn't see myself in any form, uh, it gave me the option to upload an image of myself to help train the the algorithm. And I gave in and did that. And so then I put in the prompt again. Kevin Beely and Riz Ahmed on stage at the Lacarna Film Festival. And this time, it spat out one person on stage who looked like the adult child of Riz Ahmed and Kevin Beely. <laughs> I would like so, <laughs> to see this child. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know if you're able to diagnose this or make sense of it. And I'm, I'm, part of me is asking myself, okay, am I just doing this wrong? Um, what are the what are the best practices? How do I get I the result what, I want? Uh, what algorithm did you use? I mean, what? Uh, it's maybe? just runway ML. But uh, you know, on the other hand, what you were saying about the beauty of glitches, I, I actually appreciate these glitches as an opportunity to critically um, perceive and diagnose how these algorithms may or may not be working, because I think that is probably more valuable than having your fantasies fulfilled. And that's mm -hmm. why I feel comfortable disclosing this story. But one more thing I'll add, one more detail, is that I did look up the best practices for Runway ML. And there's one keyword that they suggest you using to get the best results, and it's the word cinematic. That cinematic Ooh. is a prompt okay. for generating a, a best uh, result. Wow. We should dig into that. But I want to hear, Andrea, your reaction. Uh, well, my, my reaction <laughs> is... I don't know the details of Run ML. Um, it's a tool I haven't used personally, but um, I'm quite sure that in a couple of years at maximum, you will be able to do the same exercise and get perfect results mm. because these, these tools uh, are making progress that is quite incredible thanks uh, to the increase uh, in the quality of the data, in the computational capabilities, in the power. But if Kevin never had an image uploaded to the internet, then that program would never succeed, right? No matter how if, sophisticated. Clearly, clearly. If he uh, doesn't know who Kevin Billy is, it will never be possible to have a real Kevin Billy. But uh, think as a human, what would you do? Kevin Billy, I don't know this guy. I can imagine, I can put anybody that mm. could presumably like mm. Kevin Billy mm. is a person that is of, uh, I don't know, I could assume uh, uh, of an American accent and I got it probably wrong because you're Asian-American. So, yep. <laughs> uh, But it would be uh, a, a good attempt. But I want to bring the discussion now on, on the data, on the quality of the data that we are using to train these tools. Mm. Because this is the key issue. And uh, if you don't have uh, data that is uh, of high quality, well-structured, uh, aptly tokenized uh, to train these tools, then they don't physically work. And mm -hmm. the major effort that companies like OpenAI and Microsoft are doing right now is in curating the data and also 
curating the type of output that is produced by these tools to, produ to provide some uh, reinforcement to some behaviors and punishing other behaviors that are undesirable. Mm. And this opens up a number of ethical issues mm. because we do not know which data sets they are using mm. to train these models. These, uh, we were discussing with Kevin before of ImageNet, that was a, uh, one of the uh, first data sets that we could use to train these deep neural networks for image classification. And after a while, this uh, uh, data set was retracted because it contained uh, images that were biased, polarized, uh, misrepresenting uh, uh, people, regions, and these type of things. Now we're all very well aware mm -hmm. about the implications of using data sets that are not appropriately curated. Mm -hmm. But now that these models are in the hands of corporations, mm. how can we as citizens be sure of uh, the quality and the fairness of these data sets? And the fact that Kevin Billy will be able to use these tools uh, having his own image represented in a fair and appropriate way. There is a website that uh, you can use as a way of perceiving what images have been um, used to train these uh, these AI algorithms. It's called haveibeentrained.com, a platform uh, designed by uh, two artists, uh, Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst, based in Berlin. And um, they, they designed it as a way for artists to be able to detect if their own copyrighted artistic creations have been um, absorbed without their consent, without their permission into these training sets. Um, yeah, this question of, of, of image sets is interesting. I mean, I'm also curious about, oh yeah, because, okay, another experiment, which I don't know if I should disclose, but again, feeling the, the Locarno uh, heartbreak vibes of red carpet celebrities not being able to make it. Just know that whatever you're saying is going to be <laughs> up by a new one. But I'm a professor. So. I'm a professor. I'm here to do research. Uh, <laughs> That yeah. So what I did so when was I, when I put in a query, say something Kevin Beely would, would. This would might you. come up. So. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was because when Kate Blanchett um, declined to attend the Locarno Film Festival, um, I was curious what she would have to say. I imagine what if she was one of the featured speakers in this event? What would she have to say about AI? So I, I put in uh, you know Kate Blanchett at the uh, Long Night of Intelligence uh, talking about AI. What would she say? And what came out was that she said AI has been uh, a fantastic game changer for my career because, for example, um, recently I was in a production where they in, in, uh, utilized this algorithmic responsive lighting design that was trained to optimize the lighting setups with every change of my facial expressions, which I find ra rather fascinating. Like, can you imagine a real-time lighting and camera scheme that's responsive? <laughs> Never mind that we might be uh, eliminating <laughs> certain jobs of, of cinematographers and lighting specialists. But uh, what left me a bit troubled was that this was such a unique and, and distinct and conspicuous idea, but it had no attribution to where this idea may have come from and who's involved in it. Mm -hmm. And I find this really troubling because it's like, okay, these are ideas. This is intellectual property. And there's no way in this uh, in ChatGPT to be able to trace where these ideas come from. Yeah, absolutely. This will be uh, another major issue for research 
the ability to provide transparency and causal explanation to the reasoning that uh, these models are doing. Currently, uh, causal, uh, causality in uh, neural networks is uh, an open, open topic, mm -hmm. uh, which you're very interested in researching. But um, the causal explanation that you could get from uh, tools like uh, ChatGPT very often make very little sense. So this is one of the problems uh, that we will have to definitely solve, especially if you think uh, of real-world application. I mean, we're all having fun with ChatGPT asking, okay, write me a resume and so on. That when you use, the, use this tool for medical diagnosis, for instance, mm. then it, oh, yeah. it becomes... Uh, quite tricky yeah another thing that doesn't quite make sense is faces at times mm -hmm. uh because when i did the riz ahmed search it 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 produced faces that looked kind of riz ahmed ish mm -hmm. but not quite and I've, I've noticed this quite a few times that faces and hands uh don't produce so realistically yeah but i mean for instance mid journey had the same problem but the, the recent releases has improved the ability to draw hands and if you look at some of the um, photos that is able to generate their very, very high quality, reproducing the fake videos that we see around are of extremely high quality. And the fact that you can sample a few seconds of a people's voice and then being able to reuse it, uh, this means that you can really generate information that is fake, but mm -hmm. totally undistinguishable from uh, reality. And uh, this is another thing that we was discussing with some colleagues. How do we bring back trust mm -hmm. into uh, news? And uh, as a consequence, the fact that uh, we are going to generate lots of information that is, uh, excuse my French, bullshit, this information will be fed back into the system and used to train models that will build their knowledge on this uh, uh, biased and fake information. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, the information content is going that will be produced by these tools will be practically nothing. So this is a major risk in using these type of tools uh, with no discrimination. I wonder, I mean, is it uh, is what we want a change in the tools or a change in our paradigms of what is truth and evidence? Because with each technological development, from writing to recording to something like Photoshop, digital images, our ideas, even, even on a juridical level, like legal level, our ideas of what counts as evidence, you know, what counts as a truth claim have changed. Can we stop this kind of the ability? Or, or so is it more about building structures of knowledge and trust, like you're saying? Well, there are... Two things. Uh, one thing is that, uh, no, we cannot stop this because this already happened, for instance, when the photography was invented and then the photos were doctored in the Soviet Union. They were removing people from photos and rewriting history. So we've seen this uh, happening. This is going to happen in the future. And secondly, yes, we could build uh, a new type of uh, chain of trust, trust in uh, reputable sources and using tools like a blockchain to trust people that have seen, for instance, an interview with Zelensky. Uh, like now, you see there are many fake Zelensky uh, interviews, mm -hmm. but you could have journalists that are there, when you speak, and journalists that are accredited, and these journalists could relay the new 
the news to another colleague through a sort of secure channel uh, over a blockchain, and then you could have reputable sources that are trusted uh, that on, on which you can rely for. For instance, this is just an idea, but there, there will be solutions to a problem that we know. And we will have to use our own um, uh, common sense uh, mm -hmm. to distinguish uh, what is true and what is not. Uh, maybe in the past, uh, everything that was written on newspaper was taken for granted. Now we know that we can't trust everything that is written on newspaper. Well, it's funny because a lot of the way in which technology evolved was to correct for human tendency to lie or the ability to lie, right? So a person can lie in court and that's why you have photographic evidence. And now what you're talking about is the exact reverse of that. Mm. Photos can lie, so now we need to trust humans. But yeah, I mean, it, it feels like this like epistemic like crisis, you know? I don't know what exactly the way out is, but mm. I think that what you're saying does get back to this. I think that at some point we got to a place with technologies of capture where we felt like we couldn't have perfect control of the world, mm -hmm. right? Like the world could be perfectly verifiable, mm -hmm. recordable. And maybe what we're confronting now is that that was always a mm -hmm. fantasy. Mm -hmm. And that is a fantasy that has fed incredibly authoritarian mm -hmm. and corporate structures, but mm -hmm. it was always a fantasy, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, that's the question of, that's always been the question of surveillance. If you just mm -hmm. record everything, will crime not happen? And that's never been the case and I think like in a way what you're describing Andrea is making me think like what we're confronting is actually human society runs on really basic things like trust and mm. shared resources and investing in each other's well-being mm. and uh, yes um, I mean we are a society and therefore uh, we have also to have uh, multiple views but these multiple views needs to be weighted, integrated, and then you have multiple sources of information. You have to attribute different weights to different sources of information. And we have to exercise the same type of reasoning that you have when you hear your friends talking about maybe another friend. And um, they might have different opinions. So you have your own, and then you put them together and you give some, I mean, uh, this type of mechanism are valid at the local and at global level after all. But uh, we are, I think, escaping a bit the main focus of... <laughs> no, not the... <laughs> <laughs> because we, if we are talking about the future of intelligence, now we are talking about the future of information. Mm. And uh, the future of intelligence, uh, it's uh, maybe even more complex than this. If... Well, it, you know, the future of information is going to rely on human intelligence, mm -hmm. like new methods of human discernment and human ability to read images, read information... And how do we create the structures and the systems for programming ourselves to counter-program the, uh, the, al the algorithmic uh, reality that's being produced for us? Yeah, and, and this is what we were discussing before, the fact that uh, uh, I think that uh, we're using just a very little tiny part of our brain uh, in, a, in a sense that we would uh, deem as intelligence. Most of the use of our brain is for basic, functional, essential things. That is, uh, apart from uh, our own uh, living, like walking, doing, eating, mm. these type of things. But even when we write, uh, we elaborate, we process information, we are using uh, so, some sort of basic processing things. We are not really reflecting. We don't have time to do that. And maybe these AI tools uh, will be able to take away a bit of the burden from our lives 
and give us more time to really think about uh, what we want mm -hmm. and uh, to plan things uh, more thoroughly, mm -hmm. to evaluate uh, the counterfactuals, like uh, what happens if that thing had not happened. This type of reasoning that is at a much deeper level mm -hmm. that we very rarely exercise. So this is the opportunity I think that we have, mm -hmm. is to use these tools as uh, tools to co-evolve our intelligence to an higher level. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly like to think of a film festival as being a space for having that moment to press pause <laughs> on this algorithmic accelerationism that's just rushing us into a future that we may not well, be able to control. Speak for yourself. I, I have watched 21 movies in the last Okay, week. let's talk about some of these movies <laughs> because uh, there are two movies that come to my mind in thinking about examples of cinematic intelligence, this, this thing I threw out a moment ago, as an answer to uh, this algorithmic dystopia that we've been describing. And uh, these two films are Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World by Radu Jude and The Human Search 3 by Eduardo Williams. And what, thinking about it and listening to you now, it, it dawns on me that these two films offer two different strategies of how to confront um, an algorithmic reality. Um, that Radu Jude's film, I would say, is the cinema of transparency. Like it really is presenting um, an approach of exposing underlying realities and histories um, that are uh, masked by uh, a reality that's being produced by capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean by this, I, mean, I, I don't know if I have time to go through the entire synopsis, but it basically comes down to a um, public service or a, a safety video that a company is uh, producing, uh, exploiting... Uh, a, a worker who had been injured on the job uh, as a kind of inspirational figure and, and cautionary tale to instruct other employees to wear their safety helmets. But as they're filming this uh, safety video, it comes to light that uh, there's a completely different reality to this uh, workplace injury that really puts the, the company at fault. Um, and and but and I think the shot takes what like half an hour. Like how long is maybe this? more? Oh, no. There's this. The, it's the film's final shot is right. the shooting of this ad. But I, before we get into okay. that, Kevin, I think what is maybe when you talk about cinematic intelligence and the use of digitality and artificiality mm. in that film is that there's a running gag where the protagonist who is this. Um, freelance worker for mm. this ad company lives in her car. So she just goes everywhere in her car. She's kind of a, um, a really kind of precarious hustler, uh, as people might say. Um, and she does the series of videos, Instagram videos, right. where she wears this filter, which gives her eyebrows, a bald head and a beard. And she basically pretends to be like an Andrew Tate fan. Yeah. So she's like, she creates little parodies of, videos made by him and other, you know, really horrible, toxic men on the internet. And she says a bunch of racist and sexist things. And what's really interesting about the film and Radu Judah's work is that it is critique through embodying the thing. Mm -hmm. So like the film is full of people saying really racist shit without necessarily a moment of like someone saying, hey, this is bad. So it asks us to find a critique in like the embodiment of the thing by making it really crude mm. through the use of duration, all of that. 
And that particular, uh, the, the character's use of this uh, filter to just say these nasty things, just, she just says them, and people are like, you know you're gonna get in trouble, people are gonna think you mean these things, and she says, it's satire, you know? And actually, kind of the only thing that makes it satire is that the filter she uses is really bad. It's glitchy. So every time she turns her face, the filter doesn't work so you can see her face. And then it's just like this awful little digital composite. Mm. And that is actually how a lot of internet, Instagram, social media satire works these days, right? Through the it, glitches. Through the glitches. It takes advantage of the imperfection of these, these simulations. And I think that is something that has some larger cinematic value in what Judah is getting at. Like, if we think of intelligence, Andre, as you were saying earlier, as a kind of the ability to perfectly simulate a human, that is something filmmakers like Judah are, ex like the broken simulation Absolutely. is where we can start to find critique. Yeah, critique and art, yeah. I'll also mention uh, what I meant by the cinema of opacity with... Uh, uh, Teddy Williams, The Human Search 3, because this is using... A and I'll just say, oh, yeah. the, the film at Locarno, he has a feature called The Human Search 3, which mm -hmm. is the sequel to The Human Surge, which there is no... And there is no Human Search 2. two. Yeah, yeah, so... <laughs> I don't know if we need to explain that, but uh, it's using a 360-degree camera, which I associate as um, uh, surveillance technology. It's I think it's a similar kind of uh, image capture that uh, Google Maps would use, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what's fascinating is that it, it deploys this camera in multiple sites around the world, and it moves through these, these spaces uh, alongside groups of young people, but uh, it doesn't capture or pin them down. They kind of move alongside and through and often off screen. And, and the soundtrack is very rich with voices that we cannot pinpoint to people. So it's kind of like a counter geolocation cinema. It's, it's actually resisting um, the apparatus of surveillance that this technology is supposed to enable. And I find it completely uh, disorienting at times, but in a way that's oddly liberating. And so this is what I mean by the cinema of if opacity, like the, the, the political power of not being perceptible, not being measurable, um, of resisting the algorithm. And I think what's interesting is that what the film is doing is showing how complete capture often is unintelligible. Mm. If you record everything and show everything, it is not intelligible. If you're listening and you're able to see everything. And so what cinema does is work against like, completion. It's the mm. art of cutting space and time into digestible units. Mm. And I think that is really kind of fantastic in that film. But it's also, it composites these different locations together. So like China and Sri Lanka and these right. people together. Um, and it looks, there are glitches, but sometimes it is very convincing. I mean, I sometimes I was like, did he really fly these people out to China? Or is is this some kind of composite? And it just produces this the sense of really powerful uncertainty that feels both really, I mean, it gives you a sense of possibility, like absolutely how you can imagine. It reminds world. me of what it was like to use the internet in the nineties. Like, Oh my God, I can connect to people around the world. Right. And something's been lost in the last 20 years or so. Um, that, that feeling of the, the 
preciousness and the the amazing like value of being able to connect with people around the world we take it for granted now and this film somehow repositions that that proposition in a way that really strikes you but i think it would not affect me similarly if this was an immersive vr experience mm. so if i felt because it's two dimensional in how you consume it there is something remarkable about seeing all of these people composited but if i was in that space i think that i would not feel that magic i mean obviously mm. it's a subjective experience because then it is i guess it's simulating experience and here it's not simulating no. my experience it is simulating fantasy really right. right it's simulating like an image i may have in my head not my experience and i thought that that was very interesting yeah but withholding complete immersion and completion and 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 that fantasy of having the thing that you're wanting right. and somehow that pushing back just makes you appreciate it on its own terms it's a certain autonomy that the film uh holds in itself but also because a movie is always like an image of the past so mm. it feels complete whereas like if you're immersed in a vr environment you have this feeling of contingency and what makes movies beautiful is they are pre-constructed you mm. consume something that's been made already mm. it is complete it is bounded you know and that is a very reassuring feeling and part of the fear of ai is like the absolute unpredictability right like yeah. and the constant producing i mean you know we're no longer uh beholden to things that have been uh well pre-produced well the thing is ai is a bit pre-produced because it's using data sets but it's always generating something that seems new and it's always uh uh it's like what do you call it hitting the the slot machine you're always getting a new result and it's like wow what's going to yeah. do now what's going to do now what's going to do now and i feel like uh we're in a generation that's in the process of being mass hypnotized by this constantly producing algorithm and uh, we no longer value things that just are or have been uh, it's an interesting reflection um i think that the value of uh, uh, a movie or uh, a novel or any representation is that uh, it works a lot like our brain because uh, when we remember things uh, uh, when we remember things uh, uh we select them and we place them in a specific order and we mm. remember only relevant things so we build our own script in our mind if you think about a distant event in your past mm. and the brain is uh, quite a funny thing and i don't think that we know very well how it works yet <laughs> maybe we need to focus more on the brain rather the human brain rather than the algorithm <laughs> probably yes I think on that note <laughs> we will end this conversation. Thank you so much. I feel like this was an amazing lesson on AI. Like I learned so much, but we also managed to go in so many different directions. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism. publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.